Let's turn again to Matthew and chapter 27. Matthew 27, reading at verse 26. Matthew 27, 26. Then he, that is Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, and so on. Well, next uh, week when we meet, we're going to uh, pick up that last section. Um, and, uh, but this morning we want to look, as we saw the last time, I think it was on Zoom, yes, it was two weeks ago, um, in the morning, um, we looked at Jesus before Pontius Pilate, and we examined the person of Pontius Pilate in light of his interactions with Jesus. And we saw what made for such a tragic character as Pontius Pilate. Not that he was deceitful or brutal. And these sorts of things, which was the case. But he was deeply challenged by the person and character of Jesus, and yet made no ultimate uh, uh, move to uh, uh, submit to Jesus and to believe that he was who he said he was. We saw a man who had given himself over to the things of this world. And we were warned that when we ourselves are confronted with the truth of God's word, that we don't find ourselves so invested in the things of this world that we throw aside that which is good for our immortal souls. That's the danger. And that's one of the reasons why so many of these characters are laid out in such detail for us in the Bible. The Bible is not just a a series of propositional statements. 
It gives us character. It gives us color. It gives us all these characters who interact with Jesus as encouragements to us and warnings for us. And the Bible makes much of that. Makes much of examples, doesn't it? Hebrews 11. By faith, Adam. By faith, Noah. By faith, Moses. Listing a whole list of people who by faith responded savingly to God. And they were saved. Others who were confronted with Jesus and his claims ultimately turning away and rejecting him. One of the amazing things about the Bible and the Christian faith in particular is how it describes its founder and in the founding moments of the church. And that they take their focus in the death and rejection of their founding leader. Who would start a movement by declaring that its leader was executed for rebellion and blasphemy? That he was rejected by not only the religious leaders, the political leaders, but even those closest to him. And that the very Bible that he read and that his friends read characterize his death as a curse. And yet this is how the Christian uh, 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 movement begins. This is how Jesus begins the church. It speaks to us of the truthfulness of the Word of God. It doesn't try to whitewash some of these things and put them on the back page, but brings them out as headlines, as and, and we see that the very symbol of the Christian faith is the cross. <laughs> that the very symbol of our faith is an instrument on which our founder died being cursed of God. Isn't it incredibly strange that this is the uh, way in which our religion is characterized and how the disciples of Jesus those who proclaim the gospel thereafter preach the cross of Christ and like be us going out and starting a religious movement celebrating the fact that our leader was executed in a, 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 a an electric chair going around celebrating that he died a shameful death before the world. Uh, yeah, and now we're calling millions of people to come and believe. We're calling nations and kings and people from all over the world to come and believe in this person. And you, you ask yourself, would we, if we were starting a religious movement, do that? And we probably wouldn't. We would like to kind of whitewash or put to the back pages those sorts of things. But you have... People like the Apostle Paul who said, may I glory in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing it is. And for those who believe, you, you see why that is the case. 
why you see you're able to look beyond that which the world would sweep under the carpet and downplay that you will now bring out and put on the headlines and bring to the forefront and celebrate and make sure that all your songs are about that very way in which he died. This is what uh, uh, the Gospels do. All of the Gospels lead to this point. And as I was saying, so much of the Gospels, some, some half of the Gospel of John is on the last week of the life of Jesus. The last week. His death. But also the way in which he died. And that's what we want to see this morning. If we saw last time that of Jesus before Pilate, we now see Jesus before his tormentors. And we want to look at three things of how Jesus was tormented. As we build on this idea of the glory of the cross. As we as we look more deeply into Jesus' suffering, but as we go deeper into the suffering, we also go deeper into the love of God, the grace of God, and the purposes of God. And that hopefully at the end of this message, if you have not seen it before, that you will be able to see with new eyes that this is not a thing of ugliness but something of, uh, of unspeakable beauty and attractiveness. The first thing that we want to look at is the scourging of Jesus. The scourging of Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 26. Then he, Pontius Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Like crucifixion itself, scourging was reserved for those who were non-Roman citizens. It was often as a a kind of a preliminary uh, uh, to the crucifixion itself. Many people didn't make it to the, to the cross because they often died during the scourging. In Jewish circles, the scourging was limited to 39 lashes minus one, but the Romans were really uh, not, not beholden to that idea and often went beyond it. It was often administered by two men, each with a scourge operating from different sides. And you can imagine just at that level how terrifying that would be. If it's coming from one side, you can try to strengthen or favor that side. When it's coming from both sides, it it, it doubles the pain and the anguish. The scourge, or as a flagellum as it was known, was made by putting pieces of bone and lead at the ends of leather tongs so that when the, the, 
when the, the whip hit the person, it would often tear out pieces of flesh, often leaving the person reduced to nothing but exposed flesh and even entrails exposed. The Bible doesn't play up the physical side of it so much. It doesn't go into the great details about the scourging and the crucifixion. It was just so much taken for granted that when they wrote these words, people knew uh, the, uh, what, what it was all about. It was something they lived with in an everyday uh, way. Recently, I watched uh, the movie Spartacus, and uh, at, in, that, in the end of Spartacus, you see, uh, at the end, uh, Spartacus is hung on a cross, but down the, down the road, you see all these rebels, all these insurrectionists that rose up against Rome, lining the road, and that's the way it was, and people just knew. You didn't have to go into great detail about what crucifixion involved because it was just there for everyone to see on a regular basis. So if you walk down the road, you might see four or five crosses along the way. People hanging there sometimes for days. And so the, the, it, it really understates the physical when, when the gospel writers are writing it because the people knew for us, that's not so much the case. And we, when we read of Jesus being flogged, we need to go back. And unlike the first century readers, they, who would know exactly what that, would, what that would mean. And when they read those words of the leader of a religious movement or a, someone who claimed to be a Messiah being flogged, it, the horror of it would automatically flood their mind without having been explained to them. But for us, we, need, we don't have that historical context and we need to kind of open it up uh, 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 to, to discover the physical horror of what Jesus went through. But as I said, it was more than the physical. Many, many people were crucified. Thousands, thousands upon thousands. Rome, because they had such a huge area to police, and comparatively speaking, a small, smaller army to police the Roman Empire, they would use things like crucifixion to drive terror into the hearts of people. To say, that's what happens when you mess with Rome. Don't go up against Caesar, because this is, this is the final end. And the, the punishments, the, the uh, way in which they executed criminals was... Uh, unspeakable. But the Bible gives us not only the physical description, but it also gives us the reason. And that's what we are most interested in. And it was here where Jesus suffered the most. Yes, he suffered physically. But many, as I said, many people suffered the horror of crucifixion. For Jesus, the greater suffering was spiritual suffering. The suffering of his soul. As one person has, has poignantly put it, the soul of his suffering was the suffering of his soul. We find Jesus 
not complaining, not, not crying out about the whips and the lashes that are hitting him. Where we do see Jesus crying out is when he feels that ultimate separation from his father. That's what meant the most to Jesus, not the physical suffering, but the separation from his father. When his father laid on him your crimes and my crimes, which caused God the father to look away from the one who is now who has now become cursed. Isaiah 53, which we sang at the beginning, describes for us the significance of what Jesus is going through here. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement, that means the punishment that brought us peace, was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So where does the atonement take place? Does it take place just at the cross? It takes place during the sufferings of Jesus, through the flogging, through the stripes that came down on his back because of the whips. And Isaiah tells us that it's through these stripes, through the wounds on Jesus, that we are healed. What a paradox. What an irony that you and I find healing and forgiveness and restoration unto the living God through what was going on with Jesus as he's tied to that post. And as he is given who knows how many lashes at the hands of hardened soldiers. And yet, in that violent moment, God is bringing healing to the world. He's bringing healing to you and I. He's bringing restoration. That is, as Jesus is cast away from the Father, you and I are drawn in as we believe. As we look beyond the gruesomeness and the horrendousness of such a violent act to see what the real meaning was. You see, there was a real trial going on here. The court was in session. Jesus was brought up on charges. And even though uh, that people were lying and trying to bring up false charges against Jesus, yet there was a real trial. And it's symbolic and, 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 and it reflects the fact that we ourselves have committed crimes before God. Each one of us, the Bible tells us, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not only outwardly, but inwardly in our heart. Because God looks at the heart. He sees your heart. He sees the lies, the covetousness, the the anger, the lust. He sees all of those things. Not to mention all the outward things that we have done in our lives. And there is a real case that God has against us. Because He is holy. He is without Sin, he is pure. 
He has given us his law, and we have broken that law. But rather than casting us off and destroying us, he has sent his son. And this is the end in view. We see Jesus tied to this post and lashed with the flagellum, lashed with the, uh, 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 the, the whips, while the prophet interprets it for us 700 years earlier. In a chapter that describes a man who himself was without sin, and yet he is suffering vicariously for other people. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, is it any wonder the Apostle Paul, when he was, after all of this had finished, and he was preaching throughout the known world, and he would drop his luggage and find the closest synagogue, and he would go in and he would reason from the Bible, from the Old Testament Scriptures, that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was the expected one from ancient times who would come. That God said in such amazing detail that he is the one. He is my servant who will suffer not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. The same prophet says in chapter 50, I gave my back to those who strike. Listen to that. The Ethiopian eunuch would come along and later on in the New Testament and he would ask Philip, who is this man speaking about? Who is the prophet talking about here? Can you tell me? Who is this person? And beginning with that scripture, it tells us, Philip preached to him Good news about Jesus. You and I were being healed as Jesus was being scourged. God was dealing with our sins. God was dealing with our backsliding. We should have been there. Just like Barabbas, we should have died. But we were let go. We were freed. And Jesus died in our place. So there's the scourging. Right there, friends, we could stop. We could stop. Even that itself, as we see it unfolded in the life of the spotless Son of God, prophesied by the ancient scriptures of old of 800 years previous, that itself ought to be enough for us to drop to our knees and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. And to hail him as our king. But Matthew draws us deeper. Matthew Henry said, he had no breathing time during this. It was a crisis and the storm continued without any intermission. 
Usually people were, are given some time to regroup their thoughts, to prepare themselves for death. That wasn't the way with Jesus. As soon as the storm broke, that was it. And it didn't end until he gave up his life on the cross. Wave upon wave falls in upon over the soul of Jesus. As now the torment begins in, in earnest. It was, you see, for the Romans, it was a complete disintegration of the person. Physically, through the scourging and the crucifixion, but also psychologically, through the mocking. And though the scene is incredibly brutal, this part of it focuses in on the mockery as these men... These soldiers stage a mock enthronement, this mock enthronement of a, of a false king. A battalion of, of at least 600 men in the hall of Pontius Pilate, in the hall of the governor. Hardened soldiers gathered to a place that they didn't want to be. Now they have an opportunity of taking their anger and frustration out on this make-believe king. 600 men spitting, beating Jesus with their fists, mocking his claim to kingship. And yet, even this, even all the, the brutality, all the evil that these men could, could throw up before Jesus was itself prophesied in the psalm that Peter read for us, Psalm 22. Let's go back 300 years beyond Isaiah to King David, 1,000 years B.C., be not far from me, verse 11, for trouble is near and there is none to help. There is no one. His disciples left him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me, you lay me in the dust of death. Here again, we get a window. We get an insight into how Jesus is feeling in the midst of all of this. Jesus feels the terror and the horror of this now begin to wash over him as the father, uh, Father's presence is not near. As these bulls, these ravenous wolves come in around him. You see, the psalmist describes it this way because that's how Jesus felt. He was at the mercy of these wild animals. Not just wild, but strong bulls that gore and trample. We're getting a window into how Jesus was feeling at that moment. 
And then on top of that, they put a reed in his hand. They put a robe on his back. You can imagine how that would feel after having been scourged. Just have, a, have this cloth draped over a back that was completely exposed by now. And then on top of that, a crown of thorns pressed in on his head. And they begin to kneel before him. Hail, King of the Jews. And then they would punch him and slap him and spit on him and do everything they could possibly do to cause complete disintegration physically and spiritually within this person. Remember who Matthew is talking about here. Emmanuel, God with us. That's how the gospel starts out. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And they crown him with a crown of thorns to, of course, mock him. But in behind it all, we see the glorious plan of God. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that when sin entered the world, that the earth would produce thorns and thistles for man. It was part of the curse. It was, it was emblematic of the, 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 the curse that mankind had brought upon himself. And now, this king is crowned with an emblem of that which signifies man's rebellion against God and God's judgment upon sin. A curse. Jesus wears this crown of thorns because he is bearing a curse. Friends, as C.S. Lewis once said, there is a mystery here that even if we had the ability to penetrate it, we wouldn't have the courage. We can only stand at the margins. We can only stand at the edges and very lightly describe what it means for the, the blessed Son of God who created all things to now be the object of the scorn and mockery of angry, violent, ignorant men. And yet the very fact that he's wearing a crown of thorns itself speaks to us of a higher purpose, the purposes of God, that he would be the curse bearer. He would be the judgment bearer for what you and I truly deserve. All of these things should have been ours. But he lovingly took our place. We're Barabbas all over again. And so we have the scourging by which we are, through his stripes, we are healed. We have the mocking. We have the crown of thorns upon the one who takes our curse into his own life. And he is cut off says Isaiah, from the land of the living. He is cast into outer darkness like that, uh, sac that scapegoat in the Old Testament who has the sins of Israel em 
imposed upon it and confessed over it. And then he's sent out into the wilderness to be devoured by the wild animals. That's what Jesus becomes. He is the crown of thorns, fulfills that whole idea of the Old Testament. So that that the blessings of Abraham might rest upon you and I. But then lastly, there is crucifixion. Jesus carries his cross, which was the cross beam. It wasn't the whole cross. It was probably some estimate around 300 pounds. And he carries, he's made to carry the cross, which must have been incredibly difficult. As Psalm 22 talks about, my strength is dried up. And he's not able to carry it any further. So Simon of Cyrene, he is, he is a, 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 a volunt- he, he's basically brought in to carry this. And again, he is named because some think that Simon becomes a disciple of Jesus later on. And he, he then finishes carrying the crossbeam to Golgotha, to Calvary. It's the same place. The word Calvary is the Latin culva, which means skull. Simply the Latin of Golgotha. Crucifixion, as I described earlier, was a very slow and agonizing death. Some people spent days on a Roman cross, One person said it was so cruel that the more mild and gentle of the emperors would order the person to be strangled before they were nailed to the cross. So unspeakably awful it was. They would sometimes be tied to a cross. Sometimes they would have nails driven into their hands and feet, which is what the case was with Jesus. Breathing, as time went on, became so incredibly difficult that the person would push up on the nails to allow air to course through their lungs so they can get a a breath of, of, of air to prolong their lives. Oftentimes, and most times, people simply died of asphyxiation. This again is something, without going into a great deal of detail, it was forecast for us in Psalm number 22. The very same psalm that spoke of Jesus' lashes, the scourging, and the healing that that brought, also speaks of the nails that were driven in. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Now that never happened to David. David never had his hands and his feet pierced or nailed. But here, the psalmist is looking forward. He's going beyond David. The river is bursting its banks to the one who is far greater. He is the greater king. He is David's shepherd who gives his life for the sheep, who dies for the sheep. 
And it is because of that he is now impaled to a cross through these nails. And even that is the fulfillment of what Genesis 3 would say. Not only do we find the thorns of the curse in Genesis 3, but we have what theologians call the first gospel in Genesis 3, where God says to the devil that you will crush his heel. In other words, you will be responsible for crushing his heel. That that those nails would go through his feet and impale him to that cross. But God says, he will crush your head. He will ultimately destroy you in the very same act. In the very same moment. The cross was the devil's uh, highest expression of triumph. And yet, it was at the very mo- that very moment where the devil was defeated. As Paul says in Colossians, he triumphed over his enemies on the cross. He destroyed the works of the devil on the cross. He ransomed sinners like you and I on the cross. We were saved on the cross. Through this unspeakable form of execution. But here's Scripture, going back a thousand years and then going back to the very Garden of Eden, speaking of the, the hands and the feet of Jesus being impaled to a cross and through that, our salvation opened up and won for us. But the cross also speaks of, just like the thorns spoke of the curse, the cross spoke of the curse. Deuteronomy 21 says, anyone who was hanged on a cross is under God's curse. That's why the Jews wanted it. They didn't simply want Jesus put in prison. Let's just throw him in prison and let things cool down. No, they wanted specifically the cross because in the people's minds, anyone who was hung on a cross would be, without question, completely forsaken of God. God would have nothing to do with that person because anyone who was put on a cross, on a tree, as it, as it says here, is cursed. And so to cement that impression in the people's mind, they cry out, Crucify him, crucify him. Put him to the ultimate shame to crush any loyalty that the people might have to him because they can see with their own eyes that God has left him. But little did they know, little did anyone know, The very same scriptures that tell us that cursed is anyone who hangs on a cross are the same scriptures that forecast the fact that though he had done no violence, Isaiah 53, the same chapter, he had done no violence. There was no sin in his life. But God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
The same scriptures that say, cursed is anyone who hangs on a cross. And is that true? Yes. Was Jesus cursed of God? Yes. But it was for you. And it was for me. It wasn't because of anything he did. It wasn't because of what the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and all what the Romans presumed was the case that he was an imposter and that he was really forsaken of God. No, God forsook him. God cast him off so that we could be brought in. He became cursed so that we could be blessed. He was driven out so that we could come home. That we could be reconciled unto God. And that as we look in on this, this morning and I pray that you will prayerfully hear my words be asking God the Holy Spirit to open up your heart and mind if you have not come to this realization yet what Jesus is claiming here is something that he is claiming for the world look at verse chapter uh, Psalm 22 that describes the suffering of Jesus in such detail. Now listen. All ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules the nations. What he is claiming, even as he is standing there in his blood and the spit and the beatings and the crown of thorns and all of that, is that what he is doing is for the nations, for the world. That's why his charges were written in those three different languages, so that the world could know that he is Savior, he is Lord. God is making him both Lord and Christ. So that this morning when you look in on this, you're able to say, he did it for me. Do I appreciate everything that this passage is saying? No. And I can say, thank the Lord that I, I cannot see everything that's going on here. I, I, I would disintegrate. I, I, I wouldn't be able to handle God completely pulling back the veil on what's going on in the life of Jesus. The horror that he's meeting with. No, there's a veil drawn over it. We get what we need to know. We, we're able to see enough to say Jesus suffered horribly both in body and in soul and that it was done out of God's love for us. Oh, friends, we will have plenty of time to discover how great God's love is when we see Jesus face to face. And as those years go on, as eternity moves forward, we will never, ever stop saying, Holy is the Lord. How great is our God who purchased men with his own blood. We will, we will sing that spontaneously. We will not stop crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
because we will grow in our sense of his glory and beauty and we'll begin then to see what we were saved from. Our song won't stop here. It will be enriched. It will grow louder. It will become more informed and intelligent as we move forward into eternity. And our song will be the song of the Lamb. He who loved us and gave himself for us. For now he calls you. Now he invites you to come. There is no other. There is no other hope. The Bible is clear. We need to be able to say, Lord, Lord, you are my God. In you I trust. How compassionate Jesus was. Never accusing. Even from the cross, saying to his accusers, saying to his father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How much more is he willing to embrace you this morning and draw you in by faith as you, as you believe on him, as you engage with these words by faith and say, Lord, I thank you that you went through that for me, that Jesus underwent a real trial, that he was really condemned, that he met the sentence, not just of the Romans, of the Jews, but of Almighty God, and he willingly paid that for me. I want to honor him. I want to, I, I want to exalt him by coming with all my sin, with all my inability, and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Let's pray. Continue with us, O Lord, as we conclude our parting song of praise. Father, impress these things upon our hearts. Lord, that we might love the Lord Jesus Christ with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. O Father, we thank you for how... Jesus suffered so willingly, patiently, and lovingly, even praying for those who despitefully used him, cursed him, and mocked him. Father, may we not mock Jesus by despising these things, but by lovingly taking them up, embracing them, and living for them in the rest of our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.